0: Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. Good morning. I'm George Boracki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up this morning, a renowned storyteller and a singer-guitarist combine their talents to share a Hanukkah tale. When the wind rattled the front door, we would look up anxiously, hoping it was Papa.
1: But it was only the wind... Papa was still out there in the snow somewhere trying to get home to us.
0: First this morning, they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway, but Times Square is not the only place in New York City where neon lights shine brightly. Architectural designer Thomas Rinaldi spent a number of years cataloging neon signs around the city, signs that are slowly disappearing as lighting technology changes. Rinaldi is now out with a new book, appropriately titled New York Neon. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So what's significant about the neon sign, culturally speaking?
2: Well, where to begin? I mean, I I think the thing that fascinates me the most about it in terms of in sort of the context of New York City is just how they're there in the backdrop in almost any given photograph that you see of the city in kind of the mid-century decades in film, too, they're there. People often think, uh, when they think of neon in New York, they think of the big Times Square spectaculars, as they were called, uh, some of them very, very famous. Uh, some of them, you know, you can picture immediately. But it, to my mind, it was these little storefront signs that had a significance that was that was maybe even greater than those big signs in Times Square because they were everywhere. They were there on the little side streets. They were there in all five boroughs. And uh, these are the ones that are actually... There that you can still see, although they're the ones that are disappearing now too. So
0: why are they disappearing?
2: Well, some of them just kind of reached the end of their lifespans. But you know, the, the thing that's kind of I, I think in the consciousness of a lot of people now about their disappearance is that they're associated with largely small, uh, independent, kind of mom-and-pop-type businesses, which have seem to have been having a harder and harder time surviving. The, in the local city liquor stores, even. Local liquor stores, You know, people's favorite kind of bar and restaurant, uh, You know, neighborhood institutions, the kinds of places that really give neighborhoods uh, a sense of identity, uh, the kinds of places that are interwoven with the identity of, of individual neighborhoods, and then by extension with the whole city.
0: What inspired you to put the book together. Obviously you have an interest, but why put a whole book together?
2: Yeah, the science always fascinated me, but I think what, what was really kind of the what gave me a sense of urgency was was really the rate at which they seemed to be disappearing. You know, I had moved to New York at, at the end of 2004 and about a year later finished work on a project that was a book on historic sites in the Hudson Valley that were threatened by neglect. And so with that book the the Kind of driving force was uh, a sense of you better go out and photograph these things while you still can before they disappear. And with the signs, it was very much the same thing. You know, there were these signs that that I'd remembered uh, as a kid coming to visit the city, uh, which we did very frequently because my father's family's from here. You know, and these signs, you know, were, were just there, kind of every time we came, and then one time we'd come and they'd be gone. And then moving here in 2004, 2005, I really started to see more and more uh, of these places disappearing. And, you know, the signs were almost always kind of a... Uh, they almost guaranteed a certain kind of uh, experience. You know, if you, if you went to the business in the storefront underneath the sign, you were almost guaranteed that you were, you were going to uh, get to visit a place that was really kind of dyed in the wool... Uh, you know, a real kind of place that was of its neighborhood. Give me an example. Uh, I mean, well, one place, you know, I don't know if it's the best example, but one of the first places was the, was the Subway Inn, which is right up on 60th and uh, was at Lexington, right across from Bloomingdale's. You know, I ended up living a couple blocks uh, away from there. And, you know, I, and I always say, I think part of the reason that, you know, my friend and I, we were roommates for the first couple of years I Oven in town, you know, we, one of the reasons I think we moved to that neighborhood was because of that place. <laughs> you know, it just really it drew us in. We were just walking up the street one night before any of us even lived in New York. Uh, and there was that sign, and we said, you know, we were, we were all kind of like, let's go there, <laughs> you know, and we went in. And, uh, and anybody who's been there will know, you know, it's just a really kind of unique, at this point, it's unique. At one point, it wasn't so unique. Uh, but now places, you know, like that, places that uh, are so venerated and so kind of like steeped in just having been open for decades, uh, you know, are, are kind of, it seems like they're becoming harder to find.
0: So you started to catalog New York City's neon signs in the mid-2000s.
2: Yeah, yeah, about 2006, 2007 is when I really started to make kind of a concerted effort, you know, and uh, of going out and, and finding these signs that were just kind of there in the back of my head, you know, oh, isn't there one kind of off in that neighborhood? Isn't there one over on Amsterdam Avenue around the, you know, the in the 80s somewhere? You know, kind of like taking that to the next level of actually kind of mapping them all out, uh, which I eventually did, you know, to the, to the point of making a spreadsheet, you know, which I had to kind of do to, to sort of keep track of them. Uh, and that's also enabled me to kind of keep track of, of how many that are still around and how many that I've gotten to photograph have disappeared uh, over the past six years or so.
0: Are they making new neon signs or are all the signs cataloged in your book older neon signs?
2: For my subject, I kind of cut off at about 1970 because I found that signs made before about 1970 had a kind of distinct aesthetic from signs made after 1970 for a variety of reasons that are, I think, interesting, uh, but most people probably think boring, <laughs> in case I fleshed them out in the book. But so for the book, I really focused on uh, signs that were made before that period because they have this kind of distinct aesthetic, and moreover, they, they kind of are are associated with those kinds of businesses that we were just talking about. But, but there are definitely still neon signs being made in the city uh, of uh, a wide variety. Some of them are, are kind of, you know, just sort of ordinary signs. Uh, you still find a lot of them in windows. Uh, Kind of window signs, beer signs, that kind of thing. Uh, Some of them are new signs that are made to look old, uh, which is interesting, which I think is an indication of how much people love the look of these old signs, that they're actually making fake old ones. Uh, But more and more, neon is losing ground to new technologies, LEDs, uh, primarily at this point. Uh, You know, people often ask me, you know, do I think this is the end for neon? I don't think this is the end for neon as kind of an outside observer, not really somebody in the neon business. I think Neon will always have at least a niche because there's no other light that looks like it does. You know, it does something that nothing else can do. uh, And people really just, you know, love it for that reason. So...
0: When was the heyday of neon in New York City?
2: Most people will tell you, and I agree with most people who tell you this, that it was the 30s, the 1930s. Uh, At least in New York City, it was really the 30s. The signs first appeared in New York really in the early 1920s. You can kind of uh, trace it back a little further for some of their predecessors, but really the first neon signs showed up in New York about 1924. And then the industry of making these signs kind of matured for a few years. And in the early 1930s, mid-1930s, uh, the years leading up to World War II, uh, some really beautiful signs showed up in New York. And I'm talking really about storefront signs. Uh, of course, there were the Times Square signs, and there were some really beautiful things that were built there, too. But but the storefront signs were just great in that period. And, and you know, it was really—neon uh, was associated with this very streamlined kind of, you know, what's now called art, an Art Deco aesthetic. And so these—you uh, know, the signs were just beautiful made in those years. And we still have a few— uh, that are around in New York, some that are still even functional, which is shocking that these things are 80 years old.
0: Did New Yorkers at the time think they were beautiful?
2: Some did, and some didn't. You know, uh, very much the way people now are kind of perplexed and and uh, you know frustrated by uh, the disappearance of the old businesses that neon signs now advertise. In the 1930s, uh, you know, you can you can find uh, some interesting quotes of people sort of uh, a little bit lamenting. That neon signs were kind of coming in and displacing, uh, you know, old things that were there before them. Uh, you know, and there are a couple interesting quotes in the book. Even even Joseph Mitchell, there's one interesting quote where he was talking about an old bar that he loved uh, down in Lower Manhattan that that got this. Kind of, well, he was uh, found a very garish kind of a makeover, uh, which included a big bright new neon sign in four colors. I think is was was uh, the quote, uh, and he didn't like it, <laughs> you know, because it was it was kind of like the the new displacing. The old, uh, at that time. For
0: those not familiar with Joseph Mitchell,
2: uh, the famous New Yorker writer who is best known for "Up in the Old Hotel." And if you hadn't read, it, if you haven't read it, I was daunted by it's like eight hundred pages or something. But it's the quickest eight or nine hundred pages I've ever read. You know, it just it, it was a breeze. So read it if you haven't yet.
0: Was New York City in the 1930s also a hub for manufacturing of neon signs?
2: Yes, but uh, by its nature. Neon—you couldn't really ship neon that easily, so they didn't. New York wasn't really the kind of place that made neon signs that were then shipped all over the country. But I would say that the 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 kind of uh, design-wise, uh, New York was sort of a pioneer because uh, magazines, trade journals uh, for the sign industry, would feature photo spreads. Of uh, you know the work of New York neon neon sign shops, which were then kind of imitated by sign makers in other parts of the country. This is before World War II. This changed after World War II, and New York signs made after World War II are, are really uh you know very modest by comparison to the kinds of signs we think of and associate with Route 66 or Los Angeles or Vegas, of course. So.
0: I understand that the city was home to at least three schools of neon glass bending?
2: Yes, yeah, especially after World War II because there were all these GIs coming back. And with the GI Bill, you could actually go to one of these schools uh, and finance, pay your tuition that way. Uh, So they really kind of peaked at that period. But there are actually still some programs around in New York. Uh, where you could go and learn uh, neon tube bending.
0: Who can we thank for the neon sign? Who invented the neon sign?
2: Oh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like you can uh, uh, point to one person the way you can with Thomas Edison and the incandescent light bulb. The person who's mo- most often cited, the short answer is a Frenchman called uh, Georges Claude, who really kind of took a couple of existing technologies and uh, and ideas and synthesized them and made them commercially viable and uh, promoted the sale of commercial neon signs. And this happened in France in about 1912. Uh, he was sort of cut short by World War I, of course, but then after the war, picked up where he left off, and the signs started to multiply around Europe and then showed up, his signs showed up uh, here in the United States. In 1923, 1924, uh, but the antecedents go back a little bit further than that. Most people uh, cite a uh, an invention called the Geissler tube, which was from the 1850s uh, by a German glassblower turned physicist called Heinrich Geissler, who invented this what's called a a kind of a luminous tube where you have a sealed glass tube with an electrode at one end, which introduces an electrical charge, which then arcs across the tube, uh, helped by this sort of sealed environment to another electrode at the other end, causing the tube to glow. But these weren't all that practical, and they didn't really grow, glow that bright, so they never really became much more than a novelty. In the 1890s, there was a New Yorker actually called D. McFarlane Moore who had been an associate of Edison who wanted to come up with a, a kind of light that was more efficient than Edison's incandescent bulb. And backed by Nikola Tesla, he, was, he, he came up with what was called the Moore tube, which they tried to market as a successor for the incandescent lamp uh, for indoor uh, spaces. Uh, And it turned up in a lot of kind of lobbies for places like Madison Square Garden and post offices in in New York City and department stores and things like that. But it was also used for signs. And what they would do is they would take this glass tube and bend it into the form of letters, uh, and it became uh, apparently not uncommon to see them uh, on Broadway in New York in, say, 1900, 1905. But still there were practical limitations so the more tube for signs never really took off and uh, and so the it was it was Claude uh, from Paris who really kind of was able to take that idea and, and run with it and make it something that's, that's uh, you know, was commercially viable.
0: Weren't neon signs once associated with immorality because of what they advertised in Times Square in particular?
2: Yeah, and I mean I think in kind of an odd roundabout way that is one of the things that I think people love about the signs today. It was something that uh, contributed to kind of the decline of neon signs. Uh, One thing sort of begot the other. But as early as the late 1930s, there were new technologies that kind of displaced neon. So there was this honeymoon for a few years in the mid-30s where there were these great signs being made in New York. But after a few years, people started to complain as early as about 1938 that the signs were everywhere. So big corporations, uh, who had been the first people to commission signs in the 20s, in the late 30s, became the first people to turn their backs on neon. And so they started using uh, new things like fluorescent lamps, uh, like plexiglass, which remade the whole aesthetic of outdoor advertising signs. And especially after World War II, these things were everywhere. And so neon signs were left to become associated with, with not necessarily uh, the most seemly of businesses. And uh, so you had things like seedy old hotels, whereas the reputable hotels... Adopted these new kinds of signs. Seedy old hotels kept their old neon signs, which flickered and buzzed and didn't always work right. And which this, of course, was then picked up by uh, writers uh, like Raymond Chandler. I found in 1941 in Farewell, My Lovely, uh, Raymond Chandler hardboiled detective novel, this, probably the first reference to a neon sign in kind of this gritty. Context, Uh, And then uh, the makers of film noir films really just took it and ran with it. And you can watch almost any given film noir and come across, you know, some great flashing sign out a window, uh, you know, where somebody's about to get murdered or something. So, uh, so, yeah. And and then oddly, later on, uh, this kind of gave the signs really a a bohemian kind of appeal and, uh, you know, which, which sort of made people love them. Uh, and as I said, they kind of a roundabout way. You know, they they became very much divorced from, uh, you know, that sort of big corporate uh, overlord. And you know, that I think is part of why uh, we like them so much now.
0: What are among your favorite neon signs in New York City?
2: The first one that popped into my head when you asked me that question. Sometimes uh, people ask, and it's a different sign. But Nathan's is the first one today for some reason that pops into my head uh, out on Surf Avenue, in Coney Island. I haven't seen it since Hurricane Sandy, so hopefully it made it through okay. But in any case, it, you know, it's just it's a great display of of kind of very typical, you know, mid-20th century storefront signs. And there are signs at Nathan's from a couple of different periods. One of them, you know, my favorite part of it is a sign that was probably installed about 1931, 1932, uh, which is still there, still lights up, uh, you know, so it's just, it's, it's an eyeful, you know, but... Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites.
0: So, Thomas, what city neighborhood has the largest concentration of neon signs today?
2: Funny you should ask. Well, uh, as it happens, by way of my handy spreadsheet, I was able to figure this out. <laughs> and uh, there are two neighborhoods that really have a pretty high concentration of them. And those two neighborhoods, can you guess what they are?
0: I would say Times Square.
2: Yeah, you'd be wrong, oddly. You Is know, that right? And a, and a cop once asked me this. You know, in, in Jamaica, Queens, he saw me taking pictures of signs. And he said, signs, he's like, why don't you go to Times Square? <laughs> you know? And I was like, because there, there is hardly no old neon to be found in Times Square. Greenwich Village has a lot. Greenwich sort of Village, historic Greenwich Village. Yeah, yeah, historic Greenwich Village has, has maybe you know the largest concentration of old neon signs. I guess you could call them historic neon signs now in New York. And the Upper West Side has quite a few, too. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, and you know, you got to sort of spend a lot of time. You know, if you're me writing this book, you got to kind of wonder, you know, what is it about a place like Greenwich Village that makes it conducive to having so many signs? You know, and I'm not sure I have an answer for that, but it, it it does make you think. Do any of
0: these signs have landmark designation?
2: A few of them do. In some cities. Uh, Landmarks Commissions will actually designate a sign as a protected landmark in its own right. That hasn't happened yet in New York City, although people tried with the Pepsi sign uh, 10 or 20 years ago. The Pepsi
0: sign on the East River in Long Island City. Yep,
2: in Long Island City, which is still there, but not by virtue of having been legally protected. You know, So if, if there is a sign, though, that belongs to a building that's a designated landmark, then it is protected. And so there are a few signs that have been very carefully restored under the watchful eye of the city's Landmarks Commission. And uh, the Apollo Theater is one example. Uh, the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street is another example. There are a few signs where uh, you know somebody came along and said, you know, we want to keep this, the idea of the sign, but we want to re-letter it because the old, you know, letters no longer make sense for who we are. We're a different company. So the the big W Union Square hotel sign is an example of that where they were allowed to come in and uh, and reletter the sign, but the new letters are kind of in the style of the old ones, and the sign's still there and still lights up.
0: This book, New York Neon, is newly published. Yes, have many of the signs in this book disappeared since it's been published?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, some of them have, you know, and some of them. There's also a blog where you can kind of track when, it, whenever one disappears, I kind of pop it on the blog, which is nyneon.blogspot.com. But when it, it, there were a few that disappeared before the book was published there were a few that i wanted to go back and get better photographs of for the book and by the time i got there they were gone this ah. happened over and over again often after hour long subway rides to the far reaches <laughs> you know of every corner of the city and there were then i had to keep updating the book as as it was in production up to the very last minute you know had to update a caption and say this one's gone now you know and it just it's it's happened even since the book was published unfortunately we lost a lot this year so
0: thomas thanks so much for coming in
2: yeah thanks very much for having me it was a pleasure
0: Thomas Rinaldi is the author of New York Neon. It's published by W.W. Norton and Company. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. The holidays are about spending time with family, but when a loved one is not near, the celebration can be dimmed. The picture in the flame is a story that draws on the Jewish tradition of Hanukkah to help drive home the importance of family during the holiday season. It's told by storyteller Panina Schramm and singer guitarist Gerard Ettery. De-bum, bing, Bim bum,
1: bim bum. Bim bum, bim bim, bim bim bum. first night of Hanukkah, and my grandmother, my Baba, lit the Shammah's candle and used it to kindle the candle that stood all alone in the menorah on this first night of Hanukkah. And Baba sang the blessings with my grandfather, my Zaydeh.
0: Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech And as my Baba stared at the flame of the first candle,
1: her eyes began to fill with tears, and she looked so very far away in thought. My Zeda said to me, don't worry about your Baba's tears. Each year on the first night of Hanukkah, your Baba looks into the flame of that first candle and sees it filled with a very special memory. "'Come here, Bubba," invited my Bubbe. "'I want to tell you a story about what happened to me "'when I was a child just like you, your age. <laughs> "'It was a night just like tonight, many, many years ago. "'And this is the story that my Bubbe told me. "'We lived in a small village called Ashtetl, "'and our home was small, too. "'It had only two rooms.' One was a bedroom for my mama and papa, and the other was a kitchen and a living room all in one. And my brother Chaim and my sister Esther and I slept on straw mattresses, and we would huddle together in front of the big stove in the kitchen to keep warm. It was the first night of Hanukkah, and we were busy getting ready. We had to wash the walls and sweep the floor and cover it with a new layer of straw and Chaim had to bring in the wood from outside to keep the fire burning in the stove. And Mamma was cooking. Now, most of the time, we ate only bread, onions, some milk, and a few vegetables. But as if by magic, Mama always had some treats for the holidays, and for Hanukkah, she made little cakes and delicious latkes, and all day long, the whole house smelled of potatoes and onions frying. Oh, it was very cold. The wind howled and crept into the house through cracks in the walls and from under the door. We were already dressed in our holiday clothes, waiting for Papa to come home for the untiff. He was a woodcutter and had taken a cartload of wood to the home of a customer in the next town, and we knew that he should have been home by by now. He was always home in time to begin the holidays. Mama said nothing. She hurried back and forth between the kitchen stove and the kitchen table, and finally when her work was done, she sat down in her wooden rocking chair and waited. And we waited. When the wind rattled the front door, we would look up anxiously, hoping it was Papa. But it was only the wind. Papa was still out there in the snow somewhere, trying to get home to us. Eventually, the time came to light the menorah. But none of us said a word to Mama. We would light it only when Papa came home. Outside, we could hear the voices of some of the men singing on their way home from the shul after the evening prayers. And even though the wind howled, (laughs) the nigunim of the men could be heard clearly. Uh, If only your papa could hear the negunim, Mama whispered like a prayer. Suddenly, Mama grabbed her shawl and draped it over her head and around her shoulders, and she ran outside. What was she doing? We waited. And when she returned, Mama told us, Get our coats, follow her quickly. We left the house. Immediately our eyes began to water from the cold. Our faces grew red and we pulled up our scarves to cover our mouths and noses. We stayed behind Mama as she led us through the town, past the butcher shop, the marketplace. The snow was up to our knees and we had to lift our legs high as we trudged along. But finally we reached the little shul. And as we opened the door of the synagogue to enter, Snow blew in and made the floorboards wet. The shul had only one room, like most of the houses. And more people came in after us. And soon the little room was filled. The whole town was there. And in the midst of the people was our Rebbe, our rabbi. He wore his long black coat and sat behind one of the long, narrow tables in the center of the room. He lifted his head and looked out at all of us through eyes as black as coal. I was worried. Why were we here? What was our Rebbe about to do? I mean, the night of Hanukkah, the first night of Hanukkah, everybody should be home. Instead, we were here in the the shul. And then... In a haunting, trembling voice, the Rebbe began that mysterious sing-song chant called a niggin. And almost without realizing, we began to sing with the Rebbe. Our bodies swayed back and forth to the beat of this mysterious melody. And the shul shook and vibrations ran along the floorboards. We sailed on to each other. We sang louder and louder. Then the singing stopped. All of a sudden, there was silence. The Rebbe had stopped, and as one voice, we stopped too. We stopped singing. No one said a word. The Rebbe opened his eyes and looked beyond us to the door, and as his glance reached the door, it burst open. Dovid cried Mama. Papa, Papa, we cried and ran with Mama to hug our Papa. He shivered as we held on to him. His dark beard was hidden by frost and ice. We held on to him and hugged him. And my Bubba turned to me and said, David, you were named for my father, David. But Bubba, I asked, what happened? It was a miracle. My father had been traveling home in that storm all day. It was snowing so hard he couldn't even see two feet in front of him. And when it grew dark, he almost gave up all hope of ever finding his way home. And then, he heard singing. He heard the music. Just like Mama thought. The sound of our voices singing in the shul reached him in the woods and guided him home. The song, the voices carried on the wind. <laughs> and so you see, David, Hanukkah was a time of miracles for the Maccabees. And it was a time of miracles for your Bubbe too. And whenever I light that first candle in the menorah I see a picture of my papa in the flame The flames hold memories Bim Bim God for this miracle, and the brave Maccabees, Hanukkah's story to retell, that all men shall be free.
0: The story is titled The Picture in the Flame. It was performed by storyteller Panina Schramm and singer-guitarist Gerard Ettery. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki, My thanks to senior producer Morleen Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.